Okay, this guy is, uh, his name is Campbell Markham. Uh, in July 2017, uh, Campbell Markham, he's the minister of uh, Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Hobart, and he was until recently. Uh, he was brought before Tasmania's anti-discrimination commissioner. Uh, the complaint was about comments he'd made about same-sex marriage years earlier. Uh, two years before that, in 2015, the Catholic Archbishop of Hobart, Julian Porteous, was also the subject of a complaint to the same uh, board, the Anti-Discrimination Commission. He'd written and distributed a, a booklet to parents at Catholic schools explaining the church's support for a traditional view of marriage and its opposition to same-sex marriage. Uh, neither person insulted or abused or discriminated against anyone. Uh, the problem was Tasmania's widely criticised Anti-Discrimination Act that prohibits, uh, among other things, any conduct that offends. Any conduct that offends. Now, by that standard, Jesus himself would certainly have broken that legislation. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in his speech in the city of uh, Lystra, also broke it. Uh, and let me just warn you that I'm going to do the same thing this morning. I'll say things that you might call politically incorrect. Uh, for starters, I'm, I'm going to suggest that if Christianity is right, then that means other religions are wrong. And that if Christianity is right, the only sensible thing for Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and Aboriginal ancestor worshippers and Zeus worshippers to do is to give up what they're doing. Because following those things is worthless and become followers of Jesus instead. Now that's an idea that's motivated missionaries since the time of Paul uh, to leave their homes, to travel to a foreign place, to learn another language, all to tell people about the one true God who visited us in his son Jesus. Although these days missionaries aren't politically correct. <laughs> these days anthropologists are leading the charge with accusations against missionaries of cultural imperialism. Uh, how all missionaries want to do is to show that white people are superior and want to change the cultures that they visit. Uh, and, and that they've gone through the world and across history just destroyed cultures that are not their own. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not. There may be some truth behind it. But let me suggest the real reason people have problems with missionaries is that they have the arrogance to go to another culture and tell people they should become Christians that they're wrong and that Christians are right. Uh, well, today we're looking at the very first Christian missionaries and they're on their first mission trip. Uh, we, we saw how that began last week. I don't know if that's too small to see or not. It's a bit small for me to see on the extra small uh, on the TV up the back. Uh, Paul and Barnabas sail for Cyprus uh, and then they sail north from Cyprus to the area that these days uh, is Turkey. Uh, today we're in chapter 14 and they're preaching in the city of Iconium. Uh, if you look in verse 2, uh, the result is that they cause immediate division. Uh, they've been preaching about Jesus and they do it so effectively that large numbers of both Jews and non-Jews are convinced and they believe. Except the Jews who don't believe, they stir up trouble. They poison the minds of those listening. But nevertheless, verse 3, Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there 
speaking boldly. Now you need to do that when people don't like what you're saying. You need to speak boldly. But in verse 5, they become aware of a plot to grab Paul and Barnabas and stone them to death. Verse 6, they fled, though, to the Laconian cities of Lystra and Derbe. And uh, perhaps you can see those there on the map, a bit further round in, the, in this big arc. And when they get there, we're told in verse 7 that they continued to preach the good news. Now, it's what happens in Lystra that I really want to focus on this morning. You'll, you'll find that in verses 8 to 20, because it's here, for the first time, you see Christianity face-to-face with other religions. In this case, a very time-honoured religion as well. You may have heard the names of Zeus and Hermes before. Uh, They were gods of the ancient Greeks, the gods of Mount Olympus, of the Pantheon. Uh, They're an interesting bunch. If you you read the, the myths, the sagas, they're always fighting each other, intermarrying, having affairs. They're full of rage and jealousy against one another and against people. I want to suggest they're hardly the sort of gods you'd be attracted to. But people offered sacrifices to them. They gave up their crops to stop them being angry, to beg favours of them so that the rains would fall, the crops would grow, so they'd fall pregnant or have good luck. And the people promised the gods favours in return. But look at what happens when Christianity meets a religion like that. Uh, Follow from verse 9. First up, there's a a crippled man in Lystra. He's been lame from birth. He's never walked. And Paul and Barnabas are perhaps preaching in the marketplace or near the city gate, and they're speaking about Jesus, and he's hanging on every word. And we're told that Paul looks at him, and he sees that he has faith. And he calls out to him, stand up on your feet. He's never done it before, (laughs) but he jumps up and he starts walking and he does it without hesitation. It's the type of thing that Paul and Barnabas had been doing in Iconium as well. Verse 3 tells us that they did that by God's power. God enabled them to do it. Now, as you can imagine, it causes quite a stir. It's probably been in front of a crowd who've known this guy since he was a child. But now he's walking. And here's the point. Paul and Barnabas are agents for God's healing. This is not Paul's power. There's nothing special about these men. Uh, This crippled man walked because of the power of Jesus working through Paul and Barnabas. But try telling that to the people of Lystra. These are people who've grown up hearing the stories of the gods with power who will come down from Mount Olympus. Stories about Zeus, the father of the gods. Hermes, the messenger, the ones with wings on the back of his feet. You you see him on the Interflora logo these days. Uh, Or or, uh, Dionysus. I think he was probably pretty popular. He was the god of wines, harvest, fertility and parties. (laughs) So when they see a miracle, they reckon it's the gods who've come to visit. Uh, Look at verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they identify with Zeus. Paul, 
They say he's Hermes because he's the chief speaker. Now I wonder whether Paul and Barnabas don't understand what's being yelled, uh, whether that's the reason why we're told they speak in the Laconian language. And perhaps they only just realise what happens when the priest of the temple up the road, the temple of Zeus, he turns up leading bulls and she uh, wreaths of branches to sacrifice to them in worship. And the, and the crowds all join in as well. And the crowds start worshipping Paul and Barnabas as gods. That's a bit ironic, I think. Here are these two men telling people about how the God of all creation came into the world in human form in the person of Jesus. And they end up being worshipped as gods in human form themselves. Now the problem is not so much that God couldn't come in human form because that's exactly what's happened. The problem is they've got the wrong God and they've got the wrong humans as well. So what are Paul and Barnabas going to do? Well, one of the things they could do is just lap it all up, comfortably go along for the ride, couldn't they? It'd be pretty nice to be treated as a god. For most of us, maybe that's our secret ambition, to, to have someone treat you as a superior being, to offer you things, to do what you want. You may remember King Herod did that back in chapter 12. It didn't turn out too well for him. Now, even if Paul and Barnabas don't do that, if they don't accept the worship, at least they should say, look, we've made a mistake. We didn't realise that you had other gods that you worshipped. We'll go somewhere else. Uh, we recognise that your gods are right for you and our God is right for us. That, that would be the politically correct way to handle it, wouldn't it? Uh, you'd say, you'd go on your way and, and maybe buy a few of their statues as a souvenir of your trip. But have a look at Paul and Barnabas. Number one, they're not interested in being worshipped. In fact, the whole idea gives them the horrors. Verse 14, they tear their clothes and they rush into the crowd. Now, I'd like to see that. And they say, stop it, don't sacrifice to us. We're just flesh and blood. Verse 15, men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. But look at what they say next, because here's where they break all the rules. Uh, verse 15, we bring you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, do you understand what they're saying? They're saying, you've been worshipping Zeus and Dionysus and Apollo and Hermes, but those gods are worthless which means the religion you practice is worthless. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your sacrifices. But we're here with good news, which is you, you, you need to give that up and turn to the living God instead. Now, many people would say that's a, a funny idea of good news, I think, telling someone that their ideas are absolutely wrong and that they're wasting their time. It's a strange idea of good news unless, of course, it happens to be true. Paul and Barnabas have seen the reality of Jesus, especially of his resurrection, that he died and rose. They didn't just hear it as a legend or a saga or tradition. They saw it a few years before. 
They've seen the power of miracles, the power of changed lives, of forgiven sins. And in the light of that, they realise that every other God is an imposter. And Paul says, we're bringing you good news. Turn from these worthless things and worship the God who created you. Now that's interesting. You see, at the heart of the Christian faith is the fact that the God we trust in is the God who created us. The God who created everything. Which means the God who created everything has the right to rule it, including us. He has the right to rule us because he made us. Now that's why Paul's message is relevant to his hearers. It's why it's not politically incorrect. It's not cultural imperialism. Because God created the people of Lystra too. These petty little gods of thunder, the gods of fertility or rivers or messages or, or the sun or parties, they're small time compared to the God who made the lot, the God who made people everywhere. Follow on from verse 16. Paul says, In the past he let all nations go their own way. He's not impulsive. He's not fickle. He's patient. He's long-suffering. And he's not distant or disinterested, like your gods. Verse 17. He's not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. It's a very unusual message for a sermon, but I think it's because he's thinking about the gods they worship. Your gods are there to receive things from you. Your offerings, your sacrifices, your promises, your pledges... But the reality is the opposite's true. That's great news, isn't it? The one true creator God gives all things to you. It comes from his goodness and mercy, not because you offer him things. There's not one God for each blessing either. The one God gives it all to you. He gives you rain and crops and food and joy. And we can add... He gives you health and medicine and families and stable government and peaceful society. All of those things are evidence of a big God who gives rather than takes. That is great news. Now maybe you think that science has disproved the idea that the living God made the heavens and the earth. You may say that, but scientists are not saying that. Increasingly, even atheistic scientists are finding evidence for intelligent design behind the universe that God created. Stephen Hawking, he wrote the book, A Brief History of Time. He came up with the idea of black holes. He was certainly not a Christian, but nevertheless, he said that as a scientist, he couldn't avoid the fact that the universe is full of evidence of design. He shows the evidence. He, he does the maths that, that, that proves it. 
But the funny thing is, one of the smartest men in the world was also one of the dumbest. Because by the time he proved that there was evidence for design, in the end all he could say is, well, that's a great mystery. We don't really know anything about this designer. When what he should have done is what Paul says to do here, to recognise that God has not left himself without testimony. He's told us what he's like and that what we should do instead is turn to the one true living creator God. Our message is not about a mystery God at all. Our message is about a living God who communicated to us in the flesh as the man Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus who left a mark on the world deeper than any person before or since. And because Jesus came from the creator God, the creator of everything, his claims stand above every other claim because they're true, because they're relevant to every culture and people group. Christianity is more than just a philosophy. It's more than a life teaching or a bunch of ideas. Christianity stakes a claim, a claim that stands against every other claim. Now, that's why being a Christian and speaking up for being a Christian has always been dangerous. It was for Paul and Barnabas, verse 19, they're followed by a bunch of Jews from Antioch and Iconium, two of the cities they've just been to. They speak to the crowd, they win the crowd over. In a mob riot, they, they drag Paul, they stone him and they leave him for dead. This is a message that offends people, make no mistake. But can I challenge you to weigh up the message though? It's very nice to to stand back and say, well, you know, maybe this group is right or maybe that group is right. Maybe everyone's right. We don't want to upset anyone. But when you're doing that, when you're standing back and reserving judgement, you've already voted, haven't you? You've already said that no one is right. Now, I've got some very good news for you. You need to turn from the worthless things you've been devoting your life to and turn to the living creator God instead. And when you do that, you will find life. You will experience it the way the creator, the designer intended. I'm guessing you're not someone who worships Zeus. Maybe you're just keeping your options open to avoid offending anyone. Maybe you don't think you're worshipping anyone. Maybe you're just feeling pretty good about your life, how you've worked hard for the things you enjoy. You deserve it. You've earned them. But, but you're wrong. I suspect that deep down, all of us know that we've been made. Uh, we didn't just happen. The God who made us, the God who made everything, is in charge of our life, And he's the one who's responsible for how it turns out. He's the one who's given us the things that we've got. And here's the truth, and perhaps it offends you. He wants to claim you back. He wants you to turn from the worthless things you've been pursuing and to turn to the living God. And that is good news, I suggest. 
Now, many of us have already done that. I've got another challenge for you then, and that is to turn from, uh, you've turned from worthless things, but does your life reflect that? Do your words reflect that? Do you speak with the courage of your convictions? That's what really challenges us today. It's certainly what Paul and Barnabas did. It nearly cost them their lives. But they made it back to the other cities they'd preached in. They could have taken a shortcut, but they didn't. They went the long way round. They took the scenic route. They went back via the churches they'd already planted. And they established, did you notice, churches with elders in them. Everywhere they went, they started the first Presbyterian churches. And notice what they warned them in verse 22. Paul is standing there, just imagine it. His head's bandaged. His arm is in a sling. They thought he was dead from being stoned. And he stands in front of them and he says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. That's poignant, isn't it? That's poignant. Paul was someone who walked his talk, who backed up his words with action. It's tempting, isn't it? And Catherine shared that it's tempting, it's hard for her. I'm sharing it's hard for me as well. You see that sort of persecution, you're ridiculed or you're made fun of. It's tempting just to keep quiet, to hold back a bit on this idea that other people are wrong. But when we do that, we're giving in, aren't we? We're ignoring the reality of what God is offering them and what Jesus is saving them from. Whenever we don't try to convince someone that you are right and they are wrong, you're just saying in your actions that they're as right as you are. Now, does that mean we need to try to win every argument in every conversation we have with someone who disagrees with us? Well, I don't think so. I think there's something wise about having a long-term strategy. Uh, One of my aims in in talking to people is to to advance the conversation about Jesus one step further, to give them one more thing to think about and at the same time to keep the door open for another conversation, for another step. If I've Bible-bashed someone, I've probably not converted them and I've probably shut the door on any more conversations. Let's not forget Ephesians 4.15 that says where to speak the truth, what comes next? In love. (laughs) Speak the truth in love. We're we're not to be tempted. Uh, Let's not forget, uh, be tempted to forget the truth bit or the love bit. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We shouldn't apologise for that. That is good news. It is good news. Let's proclaim it boldly and gladly, however politically incorrect it may appear to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess uh, that... Many of these truths we know with our head and yet often our mouth lets us down. We pray that you would give us a full picture of who you are 
and uh, who you are in respect to the world that you've made, uh, humanity that you've made. And we pray that that will soak down into our souls uh, and it would soak into the words that we use and the conversations we have. And we pray it all uh, for Jesus' sake. Amen.